Sunday evening with reading a variety of scriptures from basically the thought of joy, and most of those verses were pulled out of the psalm. And tonight, if you can turn quickly, it'll be fine, but if not, I would suggest that you just write the references down to some verses that I'm going to give you, and I'll read through those. If you desire and can turn there quickly enough, then you meet me in these places. We're going to be with three in the book of Romans. But in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 12, it says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing in prayer. And again, in the book of Romans, a couple chapters away, in chapter 15, in verse number 13, it said, Now the God of, all, uh, God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. We would move then in the book of Romans back a chapter to Romans chapter 14. And looking at verse number 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, the book of James in chapter 1 and verse number 2, it said, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. The book of Philippians, Paul says, and Philippians is really themed on the subject of joy. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. I never read that verse that I don't think of Kai Kim. Uh, I remember most every day in college when Kai would come in, and he was much older than the rest of us, but uh, every day when he, we would come in for that 7.30 class, he will have driven the maroon beast. Uh, that car had to have been six miles long. I can't remember what it was. But uh, he would come in, and all of us would be complaining about the time uh, of class that morning, and he would have gotten up at 4 o'clock that morning. It was nothing for him. And he would say, Rejoice in the Lord always. And uh, one day he got a ticket on the way to school. He wasn't rejoicing that morning. And we all quoted the same scripture back to him. Uh, he said in his Korean and English, You are smart, Alex. But uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 talks about the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy. And continues on with the list. John 16 and verse 24. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that. Alright. And that particular word becomes important to me in scripture. Because it signifies purpose. So let's listen to that again. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that. What purpose? That your joy may be full. I can go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Psalm 118, 24, Psalm 16, 9, John 16, 22. We could go through numbers of verses. I told you last week, 187 verses that God talks to us about our joy. Now let's review quickly where we were last week, and then we'll start for tonight. Last week we said there were five things that we were going to cover that steal the joy from us today. Remember, we read in the book of John that it said, No man can take your joy. 
Most of the time, we think people and circumstances steal those from us. Uh, Sadly, in our study, what we see is we allow them to be taken from us. And we said, number one, by a lack of a devotional life. We talked about devotions that time. We talked about it not being just dropping your Bible open, but a, a way with method to it in which you're studying Scripture and communing with God and not just a childish devotion, but getting into the depths of God's Word and having that devotional time. Uh, we have to be careful because sometimes we'll do that when we're in need, like Israel. When we're in need, we seek the Lord and we seek the, Lord, the joy of the Lord. We'll get close to Him while to have the devotions. And have you ever noticed this? When the need passes and the joy has been restored, then we forget again what brought that joy. And that's why devotional lives are oftentimes like the current and like the tide. I heard on Wednesday that uh, the James River was at 16 feet 2 inches, the highest it's been in 10 years. And then I heard late on Friday that it was down to 10 feet. It had dropped quickly. I crossed over the James yesterday, and there were three men on these stand-up boards, surfing or whatever they call it, paddle boarding down the James River. Oftentimes, in our devotional life, when the need passes, then the desire for the devotion passes. And before long, you find that your joy wanes away. Number one, the lack of a devotional life. Number two, an unthankful spirit. We get so focused on the things that we don't have. We get so focused on the things that we want and that we desire that we forget what God has given us. We forget the blessings of God. Today, I don't know how many of you may have seen this, but we left today from church here. and I drove down and got into the bottom where the first bridge is. And I'm accustomed to seeing, even during the winter, there have been folks down there fishing at the bridge, and I saw a bicycle there, and I thought, well, there must be somebody down here fishing today. And the closer I got, I saw that it was a gentleman with a bicycle, and more than likely, everything that he had in the world was on that bicycle. There was a basket on the front of it, and it was loaded, and he had a backpack hanging off the back of it. As I passed that, Again, as I had, God's been convicting me of this recently. I just had to say, God, help me. Uh, you 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 ever complained about a good thing? Let's just be honest tonight. I have complained more to God about two of the pillows that I sleep on. I have one that's a good pillow. And somehow, every night, I kick it out of the bed. I have two that are like concrete. And they don't move. And when I have a tough time sleeping at night, I'll often think this, boy, I wish I had a really, really good pillow. Have you ever thanked God for what you have? I saw that fellow on the bridge today. Lord, help me remember him. Help me to have a thankful spirit. See, on the bike, I didn't even see a pillow. My, what God has done for us. God, forgive us 
of looking at what we don't have and becoming unthankful for what we do have. Lack of a devotional life, an unthankful spirit, dreaming outside the will of God. The grass becomes greener. And I know that people say on the other side of the fence, but the reality is, again, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. But looking outside of what God has us. Number five was comparing ourselves, or number four was comparing ourselves to others. And that brings us to a place of discouragement. And number five, where we finished, was impure thoughts. Tonight, I want us to pick up with number six. And I'll tell you, I had all intensive purposes this time last week of being here and finishing all the way through. But sometimes, God tells you to slow down. And when I began to study again on Monday morning and look through this week and the message at hand, God slowed me down on number six. And so tonight, unless I talk really fast and you listen really quick, I think number six is about as far as we're going to get. I want you to understand tonight that unresolved conflict robs us of our joy. And I want us to park here for a while. God intended Christian relationships to bring joy in our lives. That was His intent. And conflicts that arise that are not taken care of, whether they last days or weeks, and yes, I have heard of them lasting years, will rob us of joy. Paul, when he's writing the book of Philippians, is writing a book that's themed about joy. Philippians in chapter 4 in verse number 2, Paul is addressing two individuals. He's telling them to be of the same mind. He asked these two people, in essence, to resolve their issues and their conflicts between them and to be of the same mind. I beseech Eudias and I beseech Cytichia that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now let me say this tonight. You cannot walk in conflict, in relationships. You cannot walk in those and be blessed. We can't live in unresolved conflict without it becoming a cancer to us. Now at the onset tonight, as we're covering this, I want to say this. You will find people in your life in which you have unresolved conflict with, and they do not want the conflict resolved. And that's why the Bible says this, as much as in you is, live peaceably with all men. But there are some people who enjoy the misery of conflict and they want to hold you in that misery and therefore with them unresolved conflict will be treacherous. Jesus instructed us to resolve con 
conflict quickly. I want you to find your place. We'll not go to a lot of verses tonight. I will give you verse references, but in Matthew chapter 18, if you would please. Matthew chapter number 18. We're talking about this issue of unresolved conflict. We're going to look at some side effects of it, what it causes, what it does. And I want to give you seven things on how to treat it. But in Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother trespass, or shall trespass against thee, go and tell his wife. Is that the version you have? You remember we sang the song at the beginning, we need a new look at the old book. That would be an old look at a new book. Thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him. Now let me make this statement. Not between you and your wife, or you and a co-worker, or you and a friend. That's not biblical. We excuse much of our conversation as conversation, and it is not that. It's criticism. And it's a detriment. So what is biblical? Where does biblical resolution come from? You go to the person and you tell him. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now notice the phrase, thou hast gained thy brother. If we continued reading on in this passage of Scripture, what you find is shortly after this, Peter asked the Lord Jesus, how many times do you forgive? How, how many times... Peter had his idea, but God had his idea. And then Jesus gives the illustration parable of a master who gives forgiveness to one that owed him a million dollar debt. And he forgives him from the compassion of his heart. And that one goes out and doesn't forgive. And at the end of the passage, it says that the master came back and said, basically, paraphrasing it highly, what do you think you're doing? I forgave you the debt, and yet you go out and you force these others, and you put them into this position, and the master says that he delivered unto his, he was delivered unto his tormentors until he could pay, or he should pay. Now, a restored relationship, notice biblical restoration, it says you have gained a brother, and that's a win for both parties. So what is the damage? What is wrong? You say, well, I'm fine having uh, discord between myself and my mate or myself and a friend or myself and a brother. I'm okay with it. What, what's, the, what's the downside? What's the bad things? Let me give you three things tonight. There are three things that unresolved conflict do. Three damages. Number one, it blocks my fellowship with God. It blocks my fellowship with God. When I am out of sorts with you, I can't be in harmony with God. I've told a lot of men that. We'll look at Scripture a little closer later on. But men, we can't be out of harmony with our wife and be right with God. We'll prove that. When I'm distracted, I cannot hear a clear connection with God. 
You know what unresolved conflict does? You, it never leaves your mind. It eats at you. And even when you think you have put it away, it's there. And it continues again as a cancer. You go to the doctor and the doctor says to just about anybody, they give you a diagnosis that you have cancer. You know the first thing that we want to know? Can you get it out? You know why? Because we know the capabilities of cancer. And how many people have developed, my wife's uncle Larry, a number of years ago, developed a skin cancer. He worked outside in the elements a lot. He developed a skin cancer. And he took it lightheartedly. He finally had it removed after his family put a lot of pressure on him to get that done. And he had it removed. But the reality was it was too late. And he died a hard death from brain cancer. We know what cancer can do. And when the doctor says you have cancer, you want to know, can you get it out? How quickly can you get it out? I'm just, when I'm distracted, I cannot have a clear connection with God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 talks about that. And we cannot be at odds with each other and expect to hear from God as we should. It blocks our fellowship with God. Damage number two, it hinders our prayers. It hinders our prayers. Conflict with one another present, prevents answer prayer. Did, did you know that? You better know that. It's biblical over and over again. In the Scripture, the Bible talks about when we have conflict, when we have issues in our heart, when there's disharmony in our lives, it blocks our prayer. In particular, now listen, this is written to men. It's written to you and I. First Peter, write this down. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'll not read the whole verse out. The Bible talks to husbands about how they should dwell with their wives. And how we should give honor to them. And how there should be unity. And we know what the scripture says about the two become one. But then he gives the purpose and he uses the word I've been talking to you, that, that word that. And he says to them, husbands dwell. He continues on and says, giving honor that your prayers be not hindered. I wonder how much blame God gets tonight from people who have unresolved conflict in their relationship. And they say, well, God doesn't hear and God doesn't answer. Yes, He does. But not when we have unresolved conflict. When conflict comes in the front door, let me tell you this, Christians, joy goes out the back door. Job chapter 18 and verse 4 he teareth himself in his anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for thee? And shall the rock be removed out of the place? And it goes on to talk about casting a net at his own feet. Now let me give you, here's the practical part. And this is where God sort of dealt with me this week on this and said, okay, slow down. And don't just say unresolved conflict robs you of your joy. You see, I'm telling you of a problem and I'm not giving you a solution. That's not wise. 
And God sort of led me this week and said, okay, I want you to talk about the problem, but I want you also to help with a solution. And so I want to give you seven things tonight that are very practical. Seven biblical steps to conflict resolution. And this will work in our Christian relationships. This will work in our homes. This will work in our places of employment. And quite truthfully, just honestly, it will work with brothers in Christ. And it will work with people who don't know Christ. So here they are. Number one, take the initiative. There has to be a starting point. Don't wait for the person to come to you. You determine that you're going to be a peacemaker. Paul in Romans chapter 12 doesn't pretend that the conflict doesn't exist. Paul tells us in Romans 12, deal with it. Now let me see if you can finish this phrase for me. Time heals. Time heals all things. Can I tell you something? That's a lie. (laughs) Time doesn't heal. On May 31st of this year, it will mark the 37th year since I amputated my big toe. And I can prove to you tonight, time doesn't heal all things. My grandkids are fascinated. If I'm sitting in the house without my socks on, one of them will go, can I touch it? (laughs) If you want to, have at it. Some of them have sympathy on me. Oh, Papa, does it hurt? Listen, if time heals all things, I'd have a big toe tonight. But I don't. You want to see? No. (laughs) Time doesn't heal. Time doesn't heal all things. Listen, if time healed all things, then you could just go to the doctor and sit in the waiting room. You could sit in the waiting room for free. No copay. And Lord knows when you're in the waiting room, you spend a lot of time in there. When you've got an open wound, And you don't deal with it. I don't need to spend a lot of time telling adults what's going to happen if you have an open wound that you don't deal with. When you have anger that turns to resentment, then it's eventually going to turn into bitterness. And it might be 30, 40, or 50 years after the event. But if it's unresolved conflict, the bitterness will eat you alive just like cancer. Now, the only way to resolve conflict beginning is to face it. Now, let me give you a biblical example. Something came between Adam and Eve and God. And we know it was disobedience. We know it was sin. In some of Adam's words that we hear, Adam was exposed He was naked in the presence of God. And he actually, a little bit later on, said that we were naked and we knew it and we hid. And quite truthfully, man's been hiding from God ever since. 
there's three words that I see that happens with this story of Adam and Eve. First, there's a distancing of ourselves. Unresolved conflict will cause us to distance ourselves. They had conflict with God, so what did they do? They ran and hid. They didn't face it. They didn't determine, well, we've got to get before God. We've got to take care of it. They distanced themselves. They hid themselves. And remember, God's coming and he's calling, Adam, Adam, where are they? God knew exactly where he was and what had happened. But first, man distanced himself. And then the second thing we see him is he, he became defensive. You know some of the first words we hear Adam speak? In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12, I can't say that it's the absolute first word. But we hear him say to God when God sees him, he says, we went and hid ourselves, we distanced ourselves from you because we were afraid, because we're naked. And then when God began to speak to them and basically ask Adam what he's done, you know the next two words? The woman. You know what that is? That's defensiveness. The woman, that's blame shift. And if that's not enough, if he can't pin it on Eve, he has the audacity to try to pin it on God. The woman that thou hast given me. Remember, you gave her to me. His defense of this is this. It can't be my fault It has to be her fault. And if it's not her fault, it's got to be your fault. Because his defense mechanism goes up. Distancing ourselves, defending ourselves, and then demanding in order to have the last word. You know why we become demanding? Not because we fear the conflict, but I suggest to you because we fear the emotion that will come if we confront the problem. We fear rejection. We fear misunderstanding. We fear that it could be used against us. Now the truth of it tonight, church, is this. Cowards never resolve conflict. They walk away. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Write the reference down if you would, please. You know the verse, more than likely. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So how do you resolve this conflict? We start here with number one, take the initiative. Number two, confess my part of the conflict. Confess my part of the conflict. Now, you may say tonight, preacher... It's 99.9% chance that it's them, and there's one-tenth of a chance that it's me. I have one-tenth of a percent responsibility in this. I don't care. The biblical point of conflict resolution is this, confess my part of the fault. Deal with your part first. Now, let me ask if you've heard these words thrown around when there's a conflict. 
You always. You never. You know what we're doing? We're instantly trying to resolve conflict by pointing at someone else. And there'll never be any resolution until we confess our part of the conflict. Matthew chapter 7, if you would, please. Just a few pages from where we were a while ago. But Matthew chapter 7, and beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, it says this, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Interesting verses coming up. Listen attentively. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thy own eye. The mote, the little speck. You know what this is saying, this verse so far is saying? Why don't you confess your part first? Instead of pointing out fault at someone else, confess my part of the conflict. And why beholdest thou the mote that's in thy brother eye, but considers not the beam that's in thy own eye? Or, how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thy own eye. Now here's some strong words. Look at verse 5. Thou hypocrite. First, cast out the beam out of thy own eye. This is the biblical method of resolution of conflict having to do with confessing my part first. Am I being unrealistic? Am I being ungrateful for relationship? Am I being too insensitive? Am I being oversensitive? Am I being too demanding? Am I... Demanding that people live by my opinion. These are all things that we have to consider. Now, in doing a lot of reading, I have found this out. Do you know the number one phrase when people are going before the courts for a divorce? Here's the statement. Your Honor, we're, we are petitioning the court for a divorce on the grounds that we are incompatible. Lawyers wrote that word because people can be compatible. If the truth were known, our society today, many couples have gotten married, but they've never matured. And you remember what the Bible says the man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, and the two become one? Now that two becoming one means that the things that are important to the two separate are given up for the good of the one together. The problem today is that there are a lot of couples that got married, but they never matured. And they are not focused on the couple, they're focused on themselves. They're self-centered, they're stubborn, so I suggest that in a lot of courts, it ought to be stated that way. Your Honor, we're seeking, we're petitioning the court for a divorce 
because we're both immature and we refuse to grow up and we are self-centered and neither one of us are willing to change. That's the truth. That's the truth. Love is a choice. An unresolved conflict in any marriage or any relationship creates a logjam. You ever seen one of those? You go down to the James right now and you'll see it under several of the bridges. With all of the rain we've had, it's brought logs and sticks and all sorts of junk out of the mountains and brought it our way. And behind several of the bridges right now, I don't know how long they'll wait for the water to go down or if it'll ever go down, as much rain as we've had in the last 13, 14 months, over 70 inches. But somebody's got to go out there and clear those. Why? Because if not, they're going to be damaging. You see, those bridge trusses can't hold but so much weight. And that log jam has to be cleared. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Another reference for us. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, and all of you be subject one to another. Be clothed in humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. What do you do for conflict resolution number three? Listen for the hurt. Listen for the hurt. Listen carefully to this. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. I'll be honest tonight. There are some in my life that I have unresolved conflict with that I don't think will ever be resolved. And I've had to think through this. Hurt people hurt people. When there's hurt in our lives, we tend to hurt the people around us. I've told you before, traveling up Laburnum Avenue on the way to St. Mary's and got over next to Glenlee School. There was a small dog, a terrier of some sort that ran from one of the brick homes there, ran smack out in front of the car in front of me, and the lady hit the dog. And the dog was screaming, and she sort of ran over the back part, probably its spine, and the back part of the dog, it just wasn't, he couldn't walk, he couldn't get up. And I sort of pulled where nobody else was going to hit him. And I got out of the car and I walked up to that dog. And that little dog had the biggest teeth. And I tried my best. One, I wanted to move him out of the road. I felt sorry for him. And I wanted, I was there to help him. I was there to be a friend to him. But he had been hurt. And if in the thing's mind, if a dog has a mind, and I think they do, they don't have a soul, they have a mind. And it's a mind of their own most of the time. But in his mind, he knew he hurt. And he would strike at anything. Animal protection finally came. He advised me, he said, sir, I don't know how much you know about animals, but never try to touch an animal that's been hurt. Because it will do its best to hurt you. And I watched what he had to do. He went back to his vehicle and he brought a tarp out. And the two of us held it out like this and he brought it and he draped it over that dog. So that he could reach down and pick it up. And it reminded me when I look at this. Listen for the hurt. 
hurt people hurt people. And many times they're not interested in resolution. So how, how preacher, how do you hear they're hurt? If they're not telling you they're hurt, how do you know? Verse, write this down, James chapter 1 and verse 19. James chapter 1 and verse number 19. Most people aren't going to go into their history and tell you what has hurt them. Or some of the people in this very room tonight, you've been hurt by somebody. A friend or a family member, you've been hurt. Maybe you've been able to resolve that out, maybe you have not. But you ask the question, how do you listen for the hurt of somebody? James chapter 1, verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. That's really not how we practice it. We, we practice it, let every man be swift to speak. And I know that we've all heard God's given us two ears and one mouth so that we can hear twice as much as we talk. It'd be good if we believed that and practiced it. And when I say this and we read swift to hear, we think of the word listen. When you listen to people. But recently I've come to the thought of this. There's a lot of times that we listen but we don't hear. We listen, but we don't hear. This is a key verse in James chapter 1 and verse number 19. Romans chapter 15 verse 2 sort of talks about the side effects with this. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Let's move on to number 4 with this. Number 3, listen for the hurt. Number four, consider their perspective. Think about how someone else looks at the situation. Consider their viewpoint before you speak. Before you make your opinion. Intentionally shift your focus from your needs or your point of view or your winning the case. Shift it to their needs. Have you ever heard a friend complaining about something that someone did to them? Now, I'll stop and say this. If you've had a friend that you've heard complaining to you about something someone did to them, I want to tell you that friend will complain to someone else what you did to them. You need to be careful with it. But have we ever gone to think of how the perception of the other person? Philippians chapter 2. I told you I'd give you a lot of scripture references to look at. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 gives us some education on how we're to consider their perspective. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind... Be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So number four is consider things from their perspective. Now the word look in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, the very first word, look not every man. The, the key word there is look. Uh, 
look not to your own personal perspective. The Greek word skopos comes from this. And there's two types of scope that we could talk about tonight. There's the microscope, which allows you to focus on the minute things of life. And there's the telescope that allows you to focus on the grand things of life. Both ways of looking. Look not every man. Don't focus every man on his own things. Both of these look beyond ourselves. You know, there are certain things that you can't see with the naked eye that you can see with a telescope. If tonight, and I've seen people do this before, if we had microscopes in here tonight, we could have several different people come up here tonight and we could put just a little scrape of their skin under the microscope. And we could broadcast it on the screen. And you would be amazed what is on your skin right now. You, you, wonder, you wonder why you're itching over there, Miss Young, like this? It's something on your skin. And a microscope would reveal that. I say all that just with this. Look not every man on his own things. Consider their perspective. Number five. Tell the truth, and it doesn't stop there, so keep your pen ready. Tell the truth tactfully. Tell the truth tactfully. May I illustrate it this way? I'm on visitation. I walk up to a door, and I knock on the door. They come to the door, and I say, Hello, my name's Don Sumter. I'm the pastor over Landmark Baptist. And we're inviting people to our church. And I go through a few moments of talking with them. And Do you attend church anywhere? No, we really don't attend church. Well, you know, we wanted to invite you to come to our church and visit with us sometime. If by chance you come to visit, we really, I really want you to tell somebody, and I do this, tell somebody at the back door that greets you that you're here to see me and not just to see me that I visited you in your house, because I'd love to introduce you to some people. You know, we have a general conversation for a moment, and I usually, I usually, before I ever leave a door, I don't want to just witness for our church. Jesus didn't say witness for landmark. He said, be witnesses for me. And I usually bring all that conversation to close. I said, listen, can I, thank you for being courteous, and thank you for your time. Can I ask you one question? And I usually phrase that question something like this. If you were to die today, do you know that you would go to heaven? Now, is that true? Okay, is that a true way to do it? Let me ask you if this is truth. I knock on the door. I'm Don Sumter, pastor of Landmark Baptist Church. There's truth there. Are you going to hell? Is there any tact in that? I have visited with people who had that much tact. I know Christians tonight who have isolated themselves from their family. Yes, they told the truth, but not tactfully. And as a result of that, they offended family members. I could illustrate it for you tonight by a family that was having a get-together and said, we want you to come. They invited the Christian to come. 
And they didn't say, we don't want you, you, you can't say anything about Christ. They didn't say that. They just said, now you know, we have a lot, a lot of family members here that are going to be unsaved. And there's a verse of scripture that we don't want you to use. You say, preacher, they're compromising. No, I know the full story. We want you to pray for dinner. They left the door of witness open. But in the prayer, they used the verse. And they didn't speak the truth tactfully. And once it was over, it brought a huge division in the family. Write this down. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 18. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse number 18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword. But the tongue of the wise is health. Ephesians chapter 4 tells it this way. Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love. Now you want to be truthful. But God help us to be tactful. And God help our words when we're trying to bring about a conflict resolution. God help us to speak those words in love. Because if we're in the grip of bitterness and anger over the thing that happened, our speaking truth will not be with love. And we will slam the doors. The fact is we never persuade another person of our perspective by using hurtful words. Truth without love is resisted. Truth wrapped in love is received. We have to love people before we can tell them the truth. Another verse of Scripture, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to edifying. So in other words, there should never come anything out of our mouth that is used to degrade, to belittle, to offend or to put a person in what we think is their place. It's getting too quiet. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may administer grace to the hearer. Number six, fix the problem, not the blame. Fix the problem, not the blame. You only have a certain amount of emotional energy, especially when you're trying to resolve conflict. And the goal in resolving it is not to determine which is the blame. Fix the problem, not the blame. And so if you've already started, you're doing these things, you're confessing your part of the conflict, you're listening to the hurt of the other people, you're trying to see things from their perspective, then when we come to this, putting the blame back on them is going to be counterproductive. So work hard to fix the problem and not the blame. So we never, never use in our speech words of mass destruction. The words of mass destruction become weapons of mass destruction. 
That's the things that we know about people that we put away until the appropriate moment and then we say we're going to lash out. Things that should never be said. Things that should never come to light. But things that we have held because we're more interested in fixing the blame than we are fixing the problem. So if you're going to resolve the conflict that you have with the person, learn to fix the problem and not fix the blame. Colossians chapter 3 verse 8 gives us some spiritual guidance with that. But now ye also put off these things, anger, clamor, wrath, blasphemy, filthy communications out of your mouth. Put those away. Get rid of the words of mass destruction and the weapons of mass destruction. Little people belittle people. Little people belittle people. Romans chapter 14 verse 13 and we're almost to the end. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Blame is a form of judging. Fix the problem, not the blame. Number seven, focus on reconciliation. Focus on reconciliation, not resolution. (laughs) You realize this? Some things we're just going to have to agree to disagree on. The most immature, stupid, and that's a strong word, isn't it? Fight that I ever heard of between two Christian men happened in the parking lot of the church. Not this church. Though one of the people involved in the fight was in this church at one point. I'm glad they moved on before they picked this fight. It wasn't over wine or grape juice at communion. And it wasn't over music or seats or pews or anything like that. Are you ready for this? Cloth diapers or pampers. Am I telling the truth? Dr. Sumter. I'm telling the truth. Two men got in a fist fight in the church parking lot over cloth diapers or pampers. Would you agree that using the word stupid? I don't know of another word. When I heard what happened, I was just Floored. Are you kidding me? There are times that it comes that we have to focus on reconciliation and not resolution because we're not going to change. Now, listen, use what you want. If you choose pampers, bless your heart. If you want cloth diapers, bless your heart. It's sure not grounds for a fight. But these two came to that place. Resolution means resolving every issue so that there are no longer disagreements or problems. 
And I will tell you that. You're smart enough to know this. That's not going to happen. So we're not necessarily looking for resolution of the problem as much as we are reconciliation of the relationship. Reconciliation is the key that we're looking for reestablishing the relationship and that we can have unity without uniformity. Everybody does not have to be identical. So we focus on reconciliation and not resolutions. If we weren't learned to walk hand in hand without having to see eye to eye, you don't have to agree on every issue to come to the point of reconciliation. You have to focus on the relationship. Work on reestablishing the relationship and the key is that God has already begun this process. Last verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jot that down. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Not the peace lovers. The peacemakers. Tonight, we've covered just one. We have four more. Guess what? Next Sunday night. Unresolved conflict will rob you of your joy in life. So that adds to the five that we covered last week. So what's left for us tonight is inspection. Looking in. How are we handling our disagreements. Look through these things. I think they're very, very practical. But I want to tell you this. It's not my thought that they're practical. I know that they're needful. Because I know that there are a lot of Christian people who are not happy, do not have joy. And it's because they have unresolved conflict. And they deal with it every day. And our joy can't be full. And the joy that comes through the Holy Spirit, which we read several verses at the very beginning, the Holy Spirit can't do in us what He desires to do in ministry. God cannot do it if we are not right. For our joy to be full, we have to learn to take care of unresolved differences. And as much as in us is to live peaceably. Blessed are the peacemakers. Pray with me, please. Father, I hope tonight that someone has gleaned something